Welcome, everyone, to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for episode 190. We've had 573 guests on our show. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, a book I often pick up to read to get inspired and learn more about the future. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and many major media outlets. And in my humble opinion, one of the top followers on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wang, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, Bala. And I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashtar, as you know, one of the top followers top people to follow on Twitter for CIOs, CMOs, and even CEOs, especially for inspirational thoughts. He's also in business press, business media, and more importantly, he also has an awesome book you should catch one day. So, but hey, it's not about us. It is about our awesome guests. And today we have, who do we have, Vala? You know, uh, one of our first guests on Disrupt TV, he was uh, with us on episode 13, and we're at 190 four years ago, helped really launch our show. And we're forever grateful for Paul Darty, who's the Accenture Group Chief Executive for Technology. He's also the Chief Technology Officer. Paul oversees all aspects of developing and delivering technology capabilities, bringing innovation, intelligence, and deep industry expertise together with leading technologies from ecosystem of partners, including my company, to help clients reinvent their businesses as intelligent enterprises, innovating at scale. As the CTO, so the other half of his function, Paul's responsible for driving innovation through research and development activities at Accenture Labs, leveraging emerging technologies to bring the newest innovation to clients globally. He also oversees Accenture Ventures, which he founded, which is focused on uh, strategic equity investments and open innovation to accelerate growth. He's responsible for managing alliances as well. He's got a lot, I don't know, you know, I don't even know how he sleeps. Uh, he's the co-author of Human Plus Machine, a best-selling book in terms of reimagining work in the age of AI. Both Ray and I have developed keynotes based on his book. <laughs> so the Russian I, version. I, I've, I've, literally, I've literally traveled to India, Australia, around the globe giving keynotes based on this book. So a must read for anybody that's trying to trailblaze and be a change agent. He's a must follow on Twitter, capital must follow at P-A-U-L-D-A-U-G-H. Welcome back, Paul, to Disrupt TV. Yeah, it's great to be here. I didn't realize it was episode 13, you know, kind of a, an ominous number. So I'm glad I'm glad it went well. <laughs> really, you know, you, honestly, you helped launch our, our platform. So forever grateful, really. Thanks. Yeah, no, you, you're on episode 51 and 104. So you've been on three times on this show. So it's <laughs> awesome. I'm working the, the uh, prime prime number regression analysis. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, 104 didn't work. We need to get on 103, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, but hey, no, but, uh, you know, more importantly, like you've been working hard on a bunch of things. And one of the areas that we've been hearing a lot about is your COVID-19 response. Uh, and, and think about, you know, that impact on the clients around the world. Let's start there. Let's talk about what's going on, because that's top of mind for almost every business technology conversation. Yeah. Now, I'll start off by by just by painting context in the way that, that I look at this and we look at this, which is th this is different than any other crisis that we've seen before for, for a couple of reasons. One is this has been part of, this has been precipitated by the largest ever massive uh, change in human behavior at scale. You know, never before have a couple billion people changed their behavior in, almost instantaneously in the history of civilization. And uh, never happened. You know, the plagues, the wars, nothing ever did it at this scale. And there's there's tremendous human implications uh, that are brought on by that, which is different than you know, other crises we've faced. The other big change, and it, it kind of leads into answering your question, is this crisis is happening at a time of what we've talked about before, which is exponential technology change driving an unprecedented change in the way we do business. And um, the combination of the two means that the, the response to this is, is super interesting because this isn't a crisis about just hunkering down and ceasing and stopping and optimizing costs. It's a crisis that's about change and acceleration and pivoting to somewhere new. And that's kind of what, what's at the heart of what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm talking to you know, CIOs, CEOs, and 
people every day and our clients. And that's what we're hearing is it's, yes, we gotta, we gotta hunker down, we gotta conserve cash, we've gotta reduce costs, do things more efficiently. But the, the quick discussion is next is, how do I change my company to get where it needed to go? Because we, we did some research right before COVID that we released in Davos this year, that, that uh, high, it was a survey of 8,300 executives. And it highlighted that, um, you know, that, that uh, companies weren't getting the value out of their technology investments. By and large, the top 10% uh, that were leaders in getting value of their investments were had double the performance of the rest. And um, in, in, in what COVID did is, is it uh, with this massive crisis and the massive change, is it highlighted this gap, and it's really now increased this digital gap and technology gap that exists between the leaders and the laggards. So I can talk specifically about what we're doing for some of the companies in the, in the COVID response, Ray, which is your question, but that's kind of the, the broad spectrum here, which means this is a super interesting time and a really important time for anybody working in technology because it's the response to this needs to be different than other periods like this that we went through. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, you know, uh, you know, my observation from an outsider, Accenture mobilized over 500,000 employees to yep. work from home very quickly at the very beginning of this crisis. In yeah. April, you launched a platform to connect companies that were reducing their workforce to companies that were hiring. And that was a great example of how business can be the greatest platform for change and how you know your values create value and how companies can help each other during this uh, to help minimize the, uh, the imp negative impact of the pandemic. Your yeah. company is helping thousands of my customers, Salesforce customers, to massively accelerate the digital transformation initiative. So in yeah. your illustrious career at Accenture, have you ever seen your company move so fast and do so much in such little time? I feel like we're seeing the best of Accenture. And so my question to you is, how is it? How is it that this giant company is moving like a startup and is actually helping the, the, the society in, as you said, this seismic event that none of us have ever experienced? Yeah, it's been an amazing thing to, to to be part of, and it's I think this is true of Accenture. It's true of some of the other companies that I've talked to. Is uh, well, first of all, we you know we have you know over five hundred thousand employees. About two hundred and seventy thousand of them are in technology, which is kind of my area. And the um, and uh, what we did very early, like when we saw the signs of this in you know, China and saw it emerging, we started the preparation everywhere in every country: India, Philippines, U.S., you know, Europe, all the places we operate. Because we, you know, we were concerned about what the spread would do, so I think we were we, we were fortunate to be to, to that we took this proactive stance, so that when uh, when we did hit periods of disruption in any country, we were ready. We had purchased the backup laptops, equipment, Wi-Fi hubs, what have wow. you, and had positioned our people. We'd moved desktops out of offices, and we're doing that proactively. So when when the shutdowns came, and some of them came fast, we went in in one country, they were all clear, saying that they were not going to go to a lockdown. And then they issued an eight-hour notice of complete lockdown after around the hill uh, after having had a position they would never do it. And mm -hmm. we were fortunate to just be proactive and be able to, to adapt even in those circumstances. So we got very quickly to the vast majority of our people working at home. And it's I think because we've had a digital foundation, we're 95% in the public cloud with our systems. We've been a leader. You know, we, we use Microsoft Teams extensively. The number one user of Teams. Our video minutes went up 5x uh, from March 12th to March 14th when. A lot of the uh, a lot of these uh, lockdowns started happening, and um, our audio minutes went up to 900 million audio minutes uh, a month. Which, uh, if you're if you're a, if, if, to put that in context, wow. that's 1,700 that like years. That's 1,700 continuous years of audio every month. It's again, it's the larger than anybody else that's uh, doing doing this anywhere in the world. So we so we had the platforms in place to be able to work virtually. And then what we started focusing on immediately, obviously the first priority was safety of our people, getting the people yeah. safe, then getting the people connected, and then and then taking care of the well-being of our people. Uh, we launched something um, called Together More Than Together More Than Ever, which is a program to keep us because our, our thing was we, we rejected the term social distancing. We said Accenture doesn't do social distance, distancing. We do physical distancing, but we believe in bringing people socially closer together. And uh, and uh, the program, you know, together more than ever, was about specific tools and techniques and ways we were trying to get our people more together, you know, socially. Um, and that was really effective to make sure that 
you know, that in this time we're spending more time talking to each other rather than less. And the same with our clients. My message to all our teams is our clients need help more. Like just because we're not in the offices where our clients work, we need to have more touch points with our clients because they have more needs. They have concerns. They need, you know, frankly, need people to talk to as well. So our whole focus in this has been how can we be together more than ever and leverage technology and, and show others how we can use this technology to improve. What, what other... Um, thing I'll, I'll say is we've been helping a tremendous number of companies with yeah. adopting the technology as well. One of the, the ones that uh, uh, you know, we talked about publicly, it was at the National Health Service in the UK where you know, they called us up and we support you know, the, the NHS where, and they asked us to get them live on collaboration quickly. So we partnered with Microsoft and got 1.2 million uh, uh, employees of the National Health Service online and teams within a week to, you know, so that they could better serve their constituents. And there's stories, many stories like that of companies moving that fast to adapt at scale. We're seeing the best of Accenture and kudos to you. And I really believe your culture uh, and your technology, and of course your talent, those three uh, are, are contributing to, and you know, in every crisis uh, leaders emerge and you are a leader already, but you're definitely demonstrating to certainly my customers that, uh, there's no better partner in the world. So th thank you so well, much for what you do. Well, I think I think one of the things that I'd highlight is it's uh, thank you. That's very very kind comments about Accenture. And I I believe we we did do very well in this, and we were kind of leading and very proactive. But it's about an ecosystem too, and um, and uh, that's why. And I think it's true not just of us, but the customers we work with and others. It's how do you in this time especially how do you work with the ecosystem? So, you know, we worked with. Uh, with Microsoft to help Rolls-Royce turn their automotive factories to, you know, to make ventilators. We worked with Amazon to stand up uh, using Connect to stand up new call centers to help accelerate uh, un you know, unemployment benefits in Texas and other states. We worked with Salesforce, as you said, for contact tracing in Massachusetts and and um, and uh, and uh, California, you know, other states, and worked with. Uh, Work with India, you know, we work with the government of India to stand up their Sathi application, which is how the 1.2 billion people in India are keeping track of COVID and what's happening. And so the, um, you know, so it's kind of working with a lot of partners and in, in, in bringing together the, the best solutions. And our, what Julie, our CEO, said right when the, right, right when we were in the heart of this and, and this was starting is, is you know, when a when somebody on the front lines, when a first responder calls, the first thing you do is you help them and you rally that the ecosystem, the community to help them. And then you then you ask later about, you know, how does this work and 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 um, you know how are we going to sustain it long term? But the first thing that you do is you kind of dive in and help, and that's the right answer, I think, long term for the communities we work in. It's the right the right answer for the purpose that our employees feel and why we do what we do, and it's uh, it's the right answer long term for for customers and relationships because if you're there for customers and you know people when they need it most, then that serves everybody you know well in long term too. Absolutely. One of the interesting things as well is is that shift that's going on in the technology landscape. Right, some certain things have been massively accelerated. Other things have been put on hold. Yeah, uh, what are you much. seeing? What what trends have you have you seen? You know, like yeah. what's been pulled out faster that would have taken years to get to that people have suddenly made a priority, and what's been put on the back burner? Yeah, we, we've had three years of digital culture transformation in three months at least. <laughs> if you think about what's happened, and it's on a personal level as well as a business level. My uh, my wife's parents who are now avid active zoom users <laughs> had no idea what it was and uh and they're connecting with their family in ways that are more meaningful than they were before this whole crisis happened uh and that's we're all experiencing things like that and the culture changing companies is massive it's not just working virtually it's realizing what you really need to do to get things done organizations are working at a speed they never did before they're making you know they had to to respond to the crisis and keep their people safe and get their operations working now they're realizing if you strip it all back you can move faster. If you strip it all back, you can make decisions quickly. You can get less people involved and get to the same outcome. You can work virtually. And that's gonna be forever, you know, in terms of how we operate. We weren't we won't be working for from our homes forever. Those who say like, you know, most people can work from home, I, I just don't believe it because as people, we want connections, we're human beings. Uh, where the workplace is going to be transformed dramatically, real estate will be transformed dramatically, urban centers and campuses will be will look very different, I think, because of this going forward. But it'll be about places where people come together to do things and processes that are virtualized so you don't have to do that. So that people come together when they want to and when they need to, not because they have to. And that's what the long-term environment will look like. I know. We walked into an office yesterday and it was like they already spaced out everything. I mean, it was like, well, you could fit three, four people into a workspace was two. 
right? Yeah. I mean, they were getting ready to open up, and it was interesting yeah, but, to watch. Yeah, but the other thing, uh, the thing that I, I just have to talk about before we run out of time is cloud, yeah, because cloud. As I said earlier, there was an exponential curve happening, and we've talked a lot about artificial intelligence before. That's that's kind of happening, but I think what this what I think what a lot of organizations realized when the the tide went out and the you know the leaders the, the those that are lagging are looking at the leaders. There's a kind of the realization that companies are behind on the digital transformation, behind on the cloud, you know, kind of move the, the move to the cloud to really build the resilient modernized architectures of the future and the talent and operations of the future that they need. And that's what we're seeing. And you saw it and you know, look at the cloud company's results recently and you yeah. see it in their results. Uh, we can see it in our business. The companies that are coming to us to accelerate their journey to the cloud is really, um, I think, one of the one of the technology stories of, of this, of, of what's happening now. And it's going to accelerate a lot of a lot of the cloud adoption. I believe that what we're going to see is you know we're roughly 20 to 30 percent in the cloud on a workload basis i think you guys have said similar things that's going to double that, that's going to go to you know 70 plus percent um very quickly in a matter of three to four years and um and this is the this is the time to make the move and those that move faster are going to be in a better competitive position for whether it's a v or a u or a swoosh kind of recovery are going to be in a better position for the recovery. So that's where we're focusing with a lot of our customers right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, I'm, I'm a weekly contributor uh, for ZDNet. And for the last three years, the most popular blog every year was when I feature your technology vision report that yeah. you author. And uh, in February of this year, I wrote the article titled, uh, Can Your Enterprise Survive the Tech Clash? Again, featuring your work and, you know, the report said companies need to balance value with their stakeholder values in order to successfully compete right. in the digital economy. I feel your tech vision report is even more relevant now than it, when, when it was written, given the crisis we're in. So knowing what you know, what would you emphasize from the vision report? There were five elements, DNA and innovative DNA, in my opinion, is one of the most important feedbacks from the report in terms of continuing yep. to innovate and adding value. Uh, but I, I want your point of view in terms of long-term view of uh, where we are and what we need to do in, the, in, this, in, this, in this pandemic. And, and again, any, any uh, advice from the report, which again, in my opinion, is more relevant and important now than when it was written, that you want to further accentuate to our audience? First of all, we, we just are, are putting the finishing touches on a COVID update to the vision. So we took the five trends of the vision and the theme and are, have kind of written kind of what, what it means in this context. I'll send that to you. follow it out, I think, Nick, uh, in, in a couple of days. The, um, uh, it really is, I, I think, you know, back to the book and everything, I think this is going to accelerate this kind of human plus machine view on things because it's going to be, um, and that was underlying a lot of our, our vision as well. We talked about we the digital, you know, we the post-digital people was the theme of the vision. And uh, and I think that's the theme that we're going to see going forward. It's not about, you know, again, what COVID is emphasizing is how important people are <laughs> and how, how we need to keep people connected in new ways. And I think the idea of augmenting people with better tools and, and technologies, I, I've been using the term that COVID is a time for hyper-automation in what we do, but it's hyper-automating in terms of giving people tools to do better business and seeing lots of examples of that, the tools we're providing to first line responders and you know, social service agencies and such to help them better respond to these crises. I think it's also time, when I talked to CIO recently and he said, um, COVID is bringing a new business case to innovation. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, innovation that sat on the shelf now is a business case. And you know, I've got this right here, which is my, uh, my uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, there's great examples we're doing uh, at scale for very large organizations doing their new tr their training via VR, doing remote factory inspections using augmented reality and the like. I did a meeting with uh, with my team a few days ago. We, we toured some new things we're doing in our Sophia lab in France, a few of us from around the world. None of us were in our Sophia lab in France. We did a real a real tour and talked to each other and, and uh, reviewed the, the, what was happening there. And I think I, I, that's an example. I don't think, you know, it doesn't mean billions of people can use VR overnight, but it, innovation, it's a time for innovation. That's, we're seeing distributed ledger and blockchain, new applications uh, that were kind of bubbling away at small scale taking off. So when you look at the vision, I, I would say it's the human implication, thinking about how we implement the technology in a human way. It's about the, the technology foundation around the cloud, collaboration done in a secure fashion. And it's looking at how do we drive this innovation 
in very relevant ways, you know, faster into the organization. And we talked about DARK in the vision last year, DARQ, distributed ledger, AI, artificial intelligence, extended reality, which is the R, and quantum computing is the Q. Quantum may be a little bit further out still, but the other three really accelerating as we look at how things are playing these, out. These are these are must these are must read reports. As a former CMO, chief customer officer, and head of engineering, uh, you know I would build my investment thesis and future blueprint based on your reports. So I, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate, and I'm looking very much forward to your update because that's another yeah, that's meta article for me. <laughs> so thank you. Well, hey, hey, you know I, I also want to jump in though. I mean, in this time of change, uh, a lot of people are looking for leadership traits. Uh, what leadership qualities uh, mm -hmm. IT leaders, business leaders have to have. I know you've been talking a little bit about that as well with other folks. Want to share some of your uh, traits that you think people should be thinking about as they're designing for this uh, shift? I think the um, I think there's, there's a few things. One is, I think vision, you know, the kind of vision and hands-on leadership from the top is really important now. The leaders who are you know, it's, we saw this already with kind of digital and post-digital that CEOs were engaging in setting direction. They were getting into the technology decisions. I was, I was saying every technology is become. I'm sorry, every CEO is becoming a technology CEO because they're they have to get into the the guts of these decisions. That so I think that's definitely one trait. Uh, another trait I think is deep empathy and personal connection, and that's true. It's true because of the time we're in. You know, connecting with the people, giving you know the people a sense of. Uh, they're important empathizing with these new this new situation employees are in and I'm fortunate to be in nice circumstances with my you know number of people in my family working at home and I have a home where I can do that many people are struggling they have they're, they're caring for kids they're educating kids they are uh, living in circumstances where they can't comfortably work from home and I think it's really important to, a really important time to be empathetic understand the needs of people make sure we're adjusting policies appropriately and you know work you know leading the workforce. Through the you know through the changes that are coming, those are probably two key things I'd highlight. This other thing we talked about is leaders who can think about partnering an ecosystem is, yes. is really important. We've been talking about this for a few years, and I think the the, the crisis environment, what's going to happen after it, uh, and how fast companies need to move means you got to do it you know with partners. So those are a few of the leadership traits. We're going to have to catch up on duopolies. I'll share with you something <laughs> about that. That's the no, book I'm getting sure. out. Like uh, it's official now. It just went out publicly. Uh, right. But, yeah. Speaking, so we'll talk speaking, about, of, yeah. speaking of books, this is my, uh, and I hate to put you on the spot, it's my last question, but uh, I've been eagerly waiting for your second book. Uh, is there any uh, chance that we might be able to uh, update? Uh, <laughs> again, again, I hate to put you on the spot, but uh, you got a short bestseller given your success you had with this one. So We're working, we're doing the, the, the research that uh, we have the themes. I, I can't share them all here, but we got the. <laughs> Got the thesis and Jim and I are uh, are, are talking about it and uh, and have the uh, we have kind of the outline and the, the thesis of it. We're doing the research to to support it. So there's uh, more to follow on that front. And uh, I like writing as well. So I've got some ideas on the on the fiction side as well. But those will have to those will have to wait. Please give us an opportunity uh, to be uh, you know to to be early uh, viewers and readers of your book. So so I, I'm I'm thoroughly looking forward to it and really You're appreciate you. We're here with the one and only Paul Doherty, Group Chief Executive Technology and Chief Technology Officer at Accenture, author of Human and Machine. And he's been on the show, episode 1351-104, and now 190. You can follow him on Twitter at P-A-U-L-D-A-U-G-H. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, Stay absolutely. Safe. Thank you very much. Uh, one of the smartest people I know. I mean, just, just brilliant. And uh, speaking of brilliant and smart, and uh, we only bring the best and brightest on, on Disrupt TV. Ray and I, are, it's an honor for us to have Stacey Epstein, Chief Marketing and Customer Experience Officer. Think about the, the power of those two functions united under one leader. That's, it's, that, that's amazing. Uh, in, in, in this role, Stacey is responsible for making meaningful long-term impact for their customers across all areas of business. You know your culture is your brand. You know the customer experience really defines loyalty and advocacy. So to be able to shape your story and your company's narrative based on purpose of delivering a beautiful experience to your stakeholders, that's just awesome. Uh, she's an accomplished go-to-market expert with two decades of cloud, social, mobile, enterprise technology experience. Previous uh, to ServiceMax, Stacey served as CEO of Zinc, which was acquired by ServiceMax last year. You can follow Stacey on Twitter at S-T-A-C-E-Y-E-P-S-T-E-I-N. 
Welcome, Stacey. To thank you. Thank you. So great to be here. Thanks for having thank me. Our pleasure. Hey, hey, no, thanks a lot for being on the show. You are definitely an enterprise software veteran. You've played so many different roles that are out there. And, uh, you know, taking all those experiences together, I mean, it's it's a great time really to talk about some of the things that you're working on here. And of course, working on with the COVID-19 coronavirus situation. But let's start there, right? I mean, there's a lot going on. You guys have been actually doing a lot of work in those areas. So let's start talking about what's hot, what's new. Yeah, well, it's definitely a very interesting time for us at ServiceMax. And for those of you out there that don't know what ServiceMax is, we, we make technology and software for field service teams. And we're especially focused on asset-centric or equipment-centric companies. And in the time of COVID, I mean, this has just, it has pushed a lot of these uh, customers and industries to the forefront. If you think about the life of a field service technician who's out on the road fixing the world's most important machines and equipment, they are not stay at home. That is not, you know, they are a field service technician. They are in the field. And so it's certainly presented um, a lot of challenges for our customers. And we have, we really are seeing a mix. As I mentioned, we focus on equipment centric or asset centric companies. So you think of, um, the big biotech companies like Thermo Fisher, Kirkin Elmer, Abbott, Roche. I mean, these are all customers that are at the forefront of looking at how do we create tests, vaccines, treatments, right? Then you look at the big medical device companies like Medtronic, GE Healthcare, Philips, 3D Systems. Um, they're making the actual medical devices that are being used in the hospitals. Some of them were already making ventilators. Many of them are switching to making these core machines. And so instead of sitting idle and working from home, they are in the middle of the fight and they're having to ramp up operations significantly. I mean, one of our biggest customers told me that they're running at a 4X capacity of what they were doing before COVID. And wow. you manage, I know, and you think of a big, huge manufacturing company that was already probably highly optimized. Um, and you look at what does that mean to the service delivery chain? And okay, we have a set number of field service technicians that are going and installing medical devices in hospitals, and now we have to do four times as much. So it's put pressure on these organizations from the, the supply, from design to the whole supply chain and the manufacturing operation all the way to that field job. And how do I get the right number of technicians to install and maintain and make sure that this equipment is up and running? And I, I think, you know, for some of us, we sit at home and we sit on Zoom and we think, well, our world's different. I got to deal with my kids. And you think about the reality of what these companies are having to deal with. Um, so we've been just doing our best to, to come forward, help them. Obviously, we're a technology company. Um, I loved Paul's comments about the ecosystem. We're really doing what we can to help the field service ecosystem. We've uh, created a job board that, uh, you know, at the same time as a lot of these companies that are in the fight in the medical field, there are also plenty of other companies that make equipment for restaurants and retail stores, and, and they are having to furlough or lay off technicians. And so we're in a unique position where we have relationships with all of them and these technicians that are sitting idle but maybe highly skilled can be trained quickly um can supplement these teams where they're just dying for help so that's one of the things certainly our technology helps too and we're trying to be there but but uh we've the job board is one of the things that we created it's called field service finder so technicians that are looking for work or even just volunteer opportunities while they're sitting idle can help is we call it uh have the talent supply meeting the talent demand so that's one of the things we're doing um but it, it's definitely interesting to be at the forefront of some of these industries that are right in the middle of uh you know you hear the trump's um tv show and like three of our cu customers get mentioned and it's like you realize we talk about keeping the world running and it really makes it real in times like these. That's awesome. That's just pure inspiration. Yeah, it's amazing. You do. Really, that's amazing. What's also really amazing is your recent Fast Company article that you wrote. Yes. And the article was titled, Will COVID-19 Allow More Women to Become Leaders? And you talked about the past two months, 
of remote work has given the world a closer look at the juggling acts that parents, and especially working mothers, are expected to take on. And you end the post with a fantastic wisdom that said no one, regardless of gender, should ever be made to feel they have to choose between pursuing a big career and being a good and present parent. Stacey, can you talk to us about what motivated you to write the post? The tremendous feedback, I see the social stream that you're getting from the post and you know, uh, additional insights as you, you, know, you put pen to paper and shared the story with, uh, you know, with the Fast Company audience. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing it up. It's, it's a, a topic very near and dear to me. Um, as you mentioned, I've been in this enterprise tech space for almost 30 years now. So I was at Oracle in the early 90s. Uh, and it's the, the landscape has changed very drastically for women in, in many great ways. I mean, there's been a lot of movement and a lot of um, transformation and opportunities for women. But I think we're still at a place where we look around and, you know, I still often find myself in a room full of men when, when we're at a leadership level. And I spend a lot of time thinking about why that is. Um, I mean, I'm convinced that having more women and diversity in general in leadership positions is a positive. Um, so hopefully we don't have to debate that. But the question is, how can we get more? And, and you know, is it a pipeline problem? You know, there's all sorts of reasons. I like to take accountability and ownership for my own situation. And so I look at what can what can we as women do and, and what what are the dynamics that come at us? And I do think there are a lot of messages that come to women from very, very young ages. And, and the, the example I use in the article in the Fast Company article is, you know, I ask a room full of, of people in a, in a speech at how many of you have kids? And, you know, a lot of people raise their hands. And then I say, how many of you were asked if you're going back to work after you have the kid? And all the men's hands go down and all the women's hands stay up. Nobody ever asks a man if they're going back to work because it's just assumed that a man is going back to work and it's assumed that the woman has to make a hard choice. And I think that as as early as just in college, starting to think about, oh, but gosh, someday I'm going to have to make that choice. And it's a self-limiting thought process for women because we think that, oh, I can't do that big job and also be a good and present mom. And, um, and that, and, and I just so fundamentally disagree with that notion. I mean, I have two young kids and I, you know, certainly I'm home now, they're somewhere on zoom. Um, but, uh, you know, I would, I would like to think that I've been very present and I also don't think that's held me back in my career, but I know that's not true with everyone. I think COVID has put a new lens on the juggle that, the, that you described and that we call, I call it the struggle with the juggle. And I, I brought up that BBC example when <laughs> the guy comes in the room and, and, you know, and like every, you know, a lot of people looked at that and laughed and we were so horrified and we thought, oh my God, how terrible that would be. And now I know that if my kid ran in, you guys would be like, oh, whatever, you know. And how yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. We, we have all, men, women across the world have come to, to understand that we're all juggling. Men, women, everybody across the world, if you have kids, if you have another passion, it you're juggling and we see it. And I hope that it brings a new realization to everybody that it's okay. It's okay if at four you got to go to soccer practice. We're all juggling. Men should juggle too. Men should be more present at home. Women should be able to advance more in their career. As I said, it's not just women. It's no parent should have to choose. Let's do both. Well, the society will be better. We'll have more women in the workplace. We'll have more present parents at home. And uh, I think that 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 hope, my optimistic view on COVID is that that is one of the things that can hope will hopefully go in a positive direction for us all. Awesome. We got some great comments popping in here, just sharing with you. Susan Tonkin, who I know you know, uh, you know, Colin over here, uh, you know, and uh, Chris, Kristen Wells as well. Kristen Wells, like, thanks for popping those up. Uh, but yeah, you know, definitely lots of stuff going on there on that side. Um, now, there's also things that are happening around field service, right? I mean, this is exciting. We got AR, VR, IoT, Edge, everything coming back in, right? All around this. But, you know, I mean, what are you most excited about? 
Well, and Paul, uh, you know, there were a lot of things that Paul said that I just totally uh, agree with. And I, I do think that a lot of organizations, even just, even just beyond field service, I mean, we, we deal, uh, a lot of our customers are in manufacturing, right? So we're at the heart of, of that industry. But I think across all industries, there were a lot of companies that got caught flat-footed. And the ones that were furthest along in digital transformation, I mean, you think about IoT and, and connected enterprises and being able to understand the health of your equipment. And, you know, is it running at optimum capacity? Is it going to break down soon? Should I send a technician for preventative maintenance to make sure? I mean, that's all done through technology. And the companies that were furthest along in digital transformation are completely reaping the rewards of having done it. And um, and I and it's so obvious to see. And I think the ones that have been hanging back or were laggard for whatever reason are rapidly putting together their strategies for how they're going to catch up. Um, I also think that, it, and hopefully it's soon. But when we come out of this and the world comes back, I personally think it's going to come roaring back. And especially for field service, you think about all of the equipment that was shut down or put idle. It is powering up all of the all of the world's big machines that have been sitting idle. There are going to be maintenance issues. There's going to be service that needs to happen, even if it's just a health check to make sure that it's running properly. Uh, you know, all, all, all of our customers, all of those field service teams are going to be out in the field like gangbusters. And, and, and we know that technology can help do that, can help guide them to where to go first, to what the so problem is to solve it, to check the box that they've done things right. So I, I think we're headed for a, a, a big wave of digital transformation. Oh my God, we, we saw a lot of that. I was on a flight where engine two would not fire. It took two hours to get that thing on. Right? I mean, the planes that were just being added and in, I mean, we're just, we're like, come on, like what's going on? And all yeah. the retroactive maintenance, instead of the proactive maintenance and yeah. going in blind on that, just even in airlines. Can you imagine all those planes that are parked like out there that just aren't flying that was I, like chaos all the rental cars that are sitting I, there that haven't been turned i mean this is gonna be crazy it's gonna be there's gonna we we call it backlog service request backlog there's gonna be like you know i i the most important machines are gonna get looked at and fixed first and companies have got to be ready with the the number of technicians on staff that are trained the technology as much as they can do it remote uh, it, it's gonna it's gonna be a little crazy. We got to be ready for it. And I think you know why com while companies are sitting a little idle and and the office workers are at home, that's where we're really trying to help get them ready to to meet the demand that's coming. And I hope it comes soon. Uh, <laughs> I think we all want to get back out there, but uh, that's that's what we're looking at for our customers. That's amazing. Uh, you know, speaking of big machines, it was Peter Drucker who said in business, there's two main functions, innovation and marketing. <laughs> and uh, marketing is certainly disrupted in, in ways that we've never seen in our lifetime, including the fact that we had to figure out how to ship from face to face, networking and storytelling and connecting to now this purely distributed digital world. So can you talk to us about what will remain the same when we think about marketing in a post-pandemic next norm, and what are some of the things that uh, these new muscles that we need to develop as companies in order to really uh, maintain and grow those meaningful connections? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm certainly I'm a I'm an extrovert, and I I like to um, yeah I like to read people's reactions and you know we did a big keynote i did a, a keynote which should have been in, at a big conference and we decided well we have some things to launch let's just do it anyway so we i literally did a keynote from where i am right now and um it's why it's why i have this fancy little light that, that you know that i didn't have before um, you look glowing. You look glowing. Amazing. Oh, my eyes. I see the newscasters on TV. I'm like, oh, they have one. They need to take their glasses off. Their eyes. Um, so, you know, we're all learning new ways to do this. Um, it, it, it felt weird. Like I wanted to see the audience. I wanted to see, are they on their phones or are they looking at me? Are they nodding? Are they raising their hand? Like, 
as a presenter, um, you just, you can't get that feedback that you were used to. I mean, we're getting a little because people are tweeting in, but for the most part, we're like, I'm just, I'm reading you two and not the room, right? Um, and so big events, I, I think there's still a big learning curve. I hope there's still a demand for in-person and I think there will be. I think we will never eliminate that um, that need to just get together and have a conversation. Uh, but I do think, you know, from a sales perspective, from a connecting with customers, I think right out of the gate with COVID, a lot of our customers that were in the process of implementing ServiceMax, they said, oh, well, you know, let's figure things out. We're all going to be at home. We can't do the, you know, the three-day session to map out the implementation. Let's put it on hold. And, and, you know, that happened in the first few weeks. And we were like, oh, no, all these implementations aren't going to go live. And then a few weeks later, everyone settled into Zoom and, wow, I can really get accomplished. And literally all of those projects have been started up again and and we're getting them done. And in some ways, we're getting them done faster. So I think there will be a lot of learnings where, you know, you don't have to fly to to Japan to have a two hour meeting you can have, you know, maybe it's not 100% as successful, maybe it's 99%, but maybe you also saved so much time on either end that it ends up being more productive. So I do think we'll, you know, you you guys are going to have to do Dreamforce. We can't see, we can't wait to see what Dreamforce is going to look like. And I know you guys are going to do it up big and we're ready to be part of it, but you know, that'll be a great, I, I trust in the creative forces at Salesforce to do something really awesome. And I think we're all going to be watching, trying to help. And, you know, in some ways we're all, we're all in this together and, and uh, I'm excited to see, to see what we can do virtually with some of these big shows. Absolutely. We started the planning for the uh, weeks ago. Uh, so it's, uh, we're excited about it knowing that, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do at the same time. Uh, I've been to 10 dream forces. It would have been my 11th. And, uh, you know, I'm sad a little bit because oh. I, I, it's, it's a festival. I love it. I was a customer for 13 years. So I did so much for my company as a result of going to Dreamforce in terms of reshaping our vision and our investment pieces. So hopefully we'll be able to, uh, you know, uh, do something that's equally special. So. Yeah, we're excited to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and you know, the other thing that's popping up is like, we are saying like, let's push to get to smaller events. Yesterday, we did a live videotaping in someone's offices, which I won't say where, so I don't get anyone in trouble. But, but it was just nice to have six people getting together, sitting down, having that conversation for like two, three hours. Like next thing you know, it was like it was 1030 at night, right? Just to be able to have that conversation, catch up. I mean, we're going to be yearning for that. Totally. Uh, I mean, I mean, we have our event October 27th through 29th. We're still going to do it. It's yeah. not going to be 300 people, but it's going to be 200, right? And it's not going to be, you know, people are going to be sitting a little bit further apart. People are going to be tested. They're going to be okay. But but the mandate is people want to come. We had 10 people register already. He said, look, I'm not traveling for any other event this year, but I'm coming to yours, right? Yeah. And, and and you're seeing that kind of shift, which is pretty wild. So it gets me, it gets me really excited about that. Uh, last question real quick. What are we seeing in terms of customer experience changes with customers, right? Like what changes in the way that you're doing customer experience, customer success, what matters to you? Yeah, and you mentioned this in your intro, the kind of the two worlds of marketing and customer experience. It's been really fun for me because I do think the two of them really feed off each other. The more in touch you are with your customers and what they're doing and what they want, that's what you should be marketing, right? Is where, where are the successes and where are the desires and the customer base? Um, we've certainly increased our focus on customer experience in the last year. Um, I have, there is, there is one person other than me on our customer experience team, but it is a cross-functional. So there's, there's multiple people that make up customer experience, although there is only one direct report to me that kind of runs customer experience. And we've done lots and lot, you know, started with lots of research and analysis on just surveying partners, customers, employees on what, what are we doing great? What can we do better? And I think that's really at the heart of, it's like everything data should be at the heart of what you do. And so that understanding of customers, of where they are, of where to meet them. I mean, one of the things we learned, which I brought up earlier is, um, you know, where are they in their in their progression yeah, of exactly. digital transformation? And 
we learned that we were giving like a one size fits all message and approach to every customer. And so here's our product and here are the great things that it does. And that resonated for the middle section. But for the ones that were still doing things on pen and paper, they were like, well, I haven't even automated scheduling yet. And and there were others that like already had sensors in their shop floor and were ready to talk about, you know, the next wave of AI. Um, and so we learned we had to we had to work with customers where they are in their maturity curve. Um, and then that translates back to marketing, right? Then you got to make sure you're talking to prospects as to, so we really kind of changed our approach to how we work with customers and how we talk to the market in general. And so that's one of the big things, but it comes from data. So the, I think that that analysis and that real true understanding of, of where are you strong, where are you weak and, and focusing on, on doubling down on the strengths and solving the weaknesses. That's been our make our big focus from customer experience and involving every team. That's awesome. We're live here with Stacey Epstein, Chief Marketing and Customer Experience Officer at ServiceMax. You can follow her on Twitter at Stacey, E-P-S-T-E-I-N. And thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for thank sharing you. your insights. Thank you, Stacey. You're terrific. Thanks thank so you. Much. Thank you. That's amazing. Uh, amazing insights. And it, the, the power of combining customer experience, responsibilities, and marketing, I think it's just a brilliant move. Uh, speaking of brilliant, uh, our next guest is uh, Steve Wilson. All brilliant. President. All brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Wilson, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on digital identity and privacy. Steve's advisory services include security practice benchmarking, privacy engineering, privacy impact assessment. He's provided advice on national ID frameworks for governments of Hong Kong, New Zealand, Austria, uh, Australia, Singapore, Macau, Malaysia, and, and others. He's a must follow, especially as one of the world's top experts when we talk about security, distributed ledgers, blockchain, on Twitter at Steve underscore Lockstep, L-O-C-K-S-T-E-P. Welcome back, Steve, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Vali. You're so kind. Good to be here. Good to have you. Hey, hey thanks a lot for jumping in. And you wrote something, and I wanted to jump straight into this. You wrote something that caught everyone by surprise and it was pretty interesting um and i'm gonna start with this because like people were like shocked they're like wait you want contact tracing you're in on contact tracing but then you brought something else very interesting so you're talking about framing this between the privacy safety trade-off in this coronavirus crisis so let's hear what you think yeah look my instinct ray and you and i went over this a couple of months ago you know is, is privacy dead is COVID going to change everything and and my instinct was very defensive and it was like no it's not you, you know you have to understand that privacy is a human right and we're not going to trade it off um etc cetera, etc cetera. and and i also pointed out that privacy regimes around the world actually cope with this kind of thing pretty well um if you have a safety issue or a public health issue then every privacy regime gdpr ccpa they all yield to, to public health. So I was kind of, I was relaxed and comfortable about this. But then I had my own epiphany because people who I know and like and respect in the privacy world were using contact tracing as a, um, um, a, as a political um, example. Yeah. And they were calling out governments who admittedly have not done a great job on contact tracing. Um, you know, and, and technology is not... The natural place for a lot of governments. So we we saw some some contact tracing solutions that that were a bit like surveillance. Um, we saw movements in Israel to sort of be um, grasping telecommunication information and 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 literally tracking people. And I saw around the world um, pretty pretty quickly with Google and Apple and others. We settled on 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 tracing. We settled on. Bluetooth-based technology so that cell phones could tell you when you had been close to somebody who might be infected. Um, and this stuff is pretty innocuous. If it's done well, it, mm. it is innocuous. It's no worse than anything else that your cell phone does. And yet I saw a lot of reaction, a lot of like visceral, let's, let's call it hatred of governments. And I thought, you know, in a time of crisis, we're not watching a movie here. We are seeing tens of thousands of people die in ways that have never happened in peacetime. And and I actually, I was disrupted by that. I'm shocked and ashamed, actually. So I got off my moral high horse and said, look, for me, I'm a wealthy white guy. Um, I'm very privileged. Um, privacy is academic. This app is not going to harm me. 
So I've come to the party. I've said, you know, I'm going to get off my moral high horse. I'm not going to pretend that contact tracing is actually going to damage me. And I can do my bit, just a little bit, to use contact tracing to try and get the public health system um, up and running. Um, I don't think it's a big deal, but to make it a big deal, that was that was my personal epiphany. Like, why are we politicising this? Um, we, um, we 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 are always asking governments to not overreact to national security. Mm. Um, 9-11 surveillance, you know, the legislative response around the world to 9-11 was a horrible overreach. But I find that privacy people are overreaching. Like, we should not be reacting, overreacting to contact tracing in this way. You know, we have an opportunity to come to the party. It gives the government a break. Um, easy for me to say it in Australia because the government's done a fantastic job in Australia. And they've done a very unusual job in Australia. We have a we have a fiscally conservative government in Australia, not unlike the conservatives in, in the UK, not unlike the Republican Party in the US. But they did a huge fiscal ideological backflip. And they've gone into significant debt. They, they've They've nationalised the private health system in Australia. Um, they are compensating employees for staying at home. They are compensating employers for shutting down non-essential businesses. Um, we have now, overnight in Australia, we have gone into debt to the tune of about 20% of GDP. Wow, um, that's now that is a, It is a huge ideological backflip. So, me, the politics of this is important. And I figure that if, if, if our government was willing to do that, then I'm willing to come off my moral high horse and, and not make such a big deal about privacy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Steve, in the US, the first recorded COVID death was March 2nd. By June 2nd, it's likely will be over 100,000. Mm. Uh, 100,000 deaths in three months. We're at 87,000 now. So no, no doubt in my mind we'll be north of 100 in, in three weeks. So, so, you know, when we're talking about not being able to test that volume, we're talking millions per day. We've done in the US, I think 10 million in total. And the Harvard uh, Medical Study says we should be at five to six million per day in mm. order to safely reopen businesses without contact tracing, whether it's manual, digital, using Bluetooth with Apple and Google and others, short of a vaccine, which is not likely to be calendar 2020. You're right. Uh, armchair critics with no privacy concerns shouldn't have, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, fake outrage uh, about something that's critically important for us to safely reopen. How do I go back to my company's offices mm. that are 70 floors tall with thousands of people normally in and out if we don't have this capability to know when there is a positive diagnosis, how quickly can we let others know you need to potentially self-quarantine? And, and, and it's really yeah, – There's still a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of solutionism happening. And, yeah. you know, Naomi Klein wrote a brilliant piece a couple of days ago about solutionism in the Silicon Valley. And, um, oh, I mean, God help us, certain trillionaires are, are capitalizing on this. So there's a lot of nuance here and there's a lot of, you know, bad behavior still. And there is overreach. And I don't discount that. The other thing that needs to be said is that contact tracing is no silver bullet. Some of these apps don't work really well. They've been oversold. But in, in Australia, we're not overselling contact tracing. We're using it as part of a well-established contact tracing um, public health response. Yeah. And the people I speak to and, and respect, public health policy people, they say, you know, contact tracing, the app is just another signal that's going to help. And to me, I mean, I, I want a proportionate response. In Australia, we have had 100 deaths and, and we thank our lucky stars. And, and the reason for that um, is complicated. And the reason why other countries are doing less so is complicated. And there's no way am I saying that an app is going to change any of that overnight. Right. But right. if an app can help, and if an app can save some lives, um, you know, we've got to be proportionate and we've got to not make a political example out of this. I don't make a political whipping boy right. out of out of an innocuous Bluetooth app. Um, uh, yeah. uh, and I find that, that this is my epiphany and I'm willing to say this publicly. I am shocked by the overreaction and I, I, um, I, I want to do my bit. Um, there's people saying contact tracing needs to be fully decentralized. Let's do it on a blockchain and, and let's um, have a peer-to-peer -peer alert system. I don't want a peer-to-peer -peer alert system. You have to remember that this is a notifiable disease. If I get COVID or if I'm even suspected of having COVID, my name, my date of birth, my Medicare number, my medical history is going to go to the public health department as part of this you know, decades-old protocol. Um, and, and we're sort of 
we are massively overreacting if we think that we can have a fully decentralized blockchain-based, you know, peer-to-peer -peer thing. That is academic, and and I find it ridiculous that that's we can spend segue. months but, but, having these having these segue. academic arguments when people are dying. That's a great segue, really, to blockchain productization, right? I think that's one of the things you've been looking at as well, right? Uh, I mean, the COVID crisis, people, yeah, I man, of course, you know, it's blockchain. We're gonna try blockchain on everything. Let's try blockchain on COVID. Let's try blockchain on. No, we we get that, right? But but there's real productization going on. Um, so how are people going from pilot to production? Because we had all these pilots, and it was like, oh, I blockchain enabled my dog. I blockchain enabled art, right? You're like, okay, let, let's get real here. Um, but you've got a bunch of critical success factors as well. And, and, before, and before you answer, I want you to uh, uh, relive the moment about 50 minutes ago when uh, Paul said that he believes from Accenture's point of view, three years of you know, digital transformation and acceleration and urgency has been compressed to three weeks. And I want your point of view, when you look back uh, from the beginning of this uh, crisis to where we are now, has there been a stronger movement towards uh, productization of blockchain and the need for distributed ledgers? Uh, the short answer is yes. The long answer is that a lot of that, a lot of that push is still um, a little bit illusory or a little bit unsustainable. Okay. Um, what I've been doing before COVID came along for some time, I've been um, perplexed by the, the success rate or the lack of success rate for blockchain productization. So most analysts will tell you that 80% um, or 90% of blockchain pilots um, stop at the pilot and they don't proceed. Now, you can, you can look at that many different ways. You know, fast fail has been one of our Silicon Valley slogans for a long time. So maybe it's not a bad thing that if you can do a blockchain pilot quickly and learn something and then decide that it's not the ideal technology for your use case, then that's cool. Um, but nevertheless, there's clearly a level of disappointment and people were expecting a better hit rate than that. So what's going on? Um, nice. Now, a lot of people have been talking about use case selection for a long time and, and we're not um, adding to that, um, that, that debate much. What we're trying to do is to work out that if you've committed to a use case, who are the people that need to be around the table when you're designing your, your blockchain pilot and how do you get from pilot to production. Um, we have along the way talked to a number of, of you know, absolute paragon use cases, trade documentation, um, I think is still, still the best one. You know what's interesting? I spent probably three hours interviewing trade documentation um, people, vice presidents, um, um, senior executives and technology people that are, that, are, that are in those consortia. And you know what? You can talk for three hours and nobody will use the word trust. Um, a lot of that magic, right? And this is a serious thing because um, technology, every 10 years, there's a new technology that's, that, that creates trust and you sprinkle it on something and all of a sudden we're, we're getting on and we're collaborating. And No, we're not. Um, the thing about blockchain is that it's a very cool technology in some cases for making sure that a whole bunch of people in a network are, are seeing the same data at the same time and they all know that they're seeing the same data at the same time. And if you can do that, then you get a whole lot of cool benefits. You can rewind disputed transactions. You can um, you can you can fast track dispute resolution. You can eliminate a hell of a lot of paper. Um, you know the cost of dispute resolution in international shipping is something like two or three percent of net. It's it's a top wow. line cost contribution. It's about the same wow. as the cost of the diesel fuel. So um, it was put to be by one of the trade documentation people that they talk directly to CFOs of big cargo companies, and they talk about um, demurrage, which is this centuries-old um, term for the cost of what happens when something doesn't come off the ship. Um, so, so if somebody's let down the team and, and there's an element of a complicated shipping transaction is missing, it's called demurrage. It costs it yep. costs billions of dollars, and there's a there's a distinct possibility now that blockchain technology can, can give you better information and reduce demurrage. It's not about trust. It's not about smart contracts. It's certainly not about crypto and tokenization and stuff. It's really kind of dry. Mm. And um, it, it's kind of uncool in the way that mainframe is uncool. But, you know, at Constellation, we've been saying for a long time that mainframe is important and um, business transformation and, and ERP is important. And you know what's really hilarious? I think in 10 years' time, blockchain will be like the new ERP and it will be as cool as ERP. And the cool kids will move on to something else. <laughs> and meanwhile, the CFOs will be talking about demurrage and kind of grown-up stuff. And, and that, that will change the world.
Uh, my, my last question to you, respectful of your time, uh, is self-sovereign identity cool? <laughs> tell, tell, tell us about the latest trends in identity. What does sovereignty mean in the context of identity? Yeah, well, sovereignty is one of these things that, um, you know, the time has come for sovereignty because we're all so um, pissed off and angry about exploitation <laughs> online. You know, it's one of the... And, and with that backdrop, that's what's energized a lot of this sort of visceral reaction to mm. contact tracing technology because we wow. don't trust governments anymore. So the hell if I'm trusting a contact tracing app. <laughs> so a lot of this is political. And the funny thing about self-sovereign identity, so that's another major research project at the moment. And we're doing a lot of mm. um, in-depth um, interviews and workshops with people and unpacking the politics of this thing. And most people will admit that it's a, it's a political push to kind of restore the power imbalance. So my question is simply, and in, in 30 seconds, if you think that you're going to turn around um, the, 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 the national governments who you don't, don't like, if you're going to turn around the big digital companies that are exploiting us, if you're going to get um, better um, digital democratization by owning identity, I mean, we don't even know what own identity means. So we've been talking about owning data and owning identity is is identity something that you can be sovereign over and there's some really good political scientists out there who say oh no that's kind of a, a category error what you can do is that you can make identity more portable and you can absolutely use distributed technology and, and client-side technology to help yep. people manage their keys to prove you know if i want my social security number to not get stolen why don't you wrap it in a cryptographic verifiable wrapper, verifiable identity, verifiable claims? That's good technology. And why don't you make sure that if, if Vala has interest in my social security number, you know it's coming from me and it's coming from a trusted client-side device. It hasn't come from the cloud. So you've got proof of possession. You've got proof of control. You've got um, chains of, of custody and delegation. Cool stuff. Question is, is that, you know, is that sovereignty? No, it's portable. It's portability of information. And I actually say, so one of the, my provocations to people, and I, and I admit it's purely provocative, it's probably not helpful, but I say to people, forget about identity because what really matters and the really big play in the next 10 years is going to be the portability of verifiable data. Yeah. And, you know, my identity is just bits of data. It's just we, yeah. we should not be wow. anthropomorphizing this stuff. It's just data about me. So how do I make sure that that data is reliable and portable and verifiable and you know we've, there are some very cool technologies for this that are now settling out and the industry is i think is really healthy do you think do you think as we shift to a distributed digital higher education model where your credentials need to be mobile as you shift from potentially campus to campus more of a more of an android operating system versus a closed apple ios will be will there be certain industries that are going to drive universal identity and, and standards that can help that mobility of data uh, and ownership of that data? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So distributed ledger is a nice place, again, for finding data. Um, one of the coolest things about the blockchain, the original blockchain, was availability. It's always there. It never goes away. Um, you, you can find stuff. So the idea about using um, blockchain is like a like a, an added reliability layer in the cloud. There's some goodness there. And certainly being able to find your educational credentials and, and all of your lifelong learnings. The yeah. idea of lifelong learning record um, U.S. education with the help of, of, of Salesforce and Microsoft and some big companies and some small companies, um, they're, doing, they're doing some great work. My considered opinion is that the more important technology here is actually um, client-side stuff for proof of possession, proof of control. I think, I think that the way that you um, distribute the data, whether it's a blockchain or a good old-fashioned database, I think that that's less important. But, you know, the... The innovation, the disruption dynamic here is important. Um, a lot of stuff has been shaken up and a lot of things that we said couldn't be done um, are actually being done. And that's that's good. That's great. Wow. We are here live with Steve Wilson, VP and Principal Alice at Constellation Research. You can follow him at Steve underscore Lockstep. He's been on seven times and each time fascinating. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs> Cheers. Have a great weekend, folks. Stay safe. All right. Take care. Ray, he's a big brain. Honestly, there, you know, there's a handful of times where we bring true expert, deep, deep insight, deep and wide. And uh, you're lucky uh, to have some deep brains surrounding you at Constellation. Speaking of deep brains and people that uh, inspire us, next week, episode 191, we have Milan Ra, president at Wipro. 
Uh, and uh, they're doing amazing work just from philanthropic to technological to transformational. Uh, and, and as president, he's really shaping Wipro to be a global powerhouse in terms of digital transformation. We have Jim McLevy, co-founder of Square and author of Innovation Stack, who's going to be talking about his book and his company. And one of our favorites, uh, you know, she can easily be a co-host anytime you and I are not available, and she's proven that number of times. In fact, I think if you survey our audience, they might want her to. They might uh, like her more than us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why we're not going to survey our customers. We're not going to survey the audience. <laughs> yeah. Liz Miller, Liz Miller, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, another big brain with big personality. So when Liz comes on, you got to fasten your seatbelt, get your popcorn out and get ready to go on a roller coaster ride of incredible education and inspiration. She's awesome. Uh, so yeah, you know, if it's Friday, it's disrupting me. Ray, amazing guests this show. I mean, just from just, it's just amazing guests. So uh, your closing remarks. Your closing remarks. Yeah, I, look, I want to thank our producer. Uh, we've been getting some great guests here. Um, I also want to address the question. I think this is the number one question. I think Vala, you and I are getting, will Ray Wong and Vala Ashtar take sponsorships on Disrupt TV show? Ooh, I don't know. We'll see. We're debating about it. I know a lot of people have asked. We're trying to think of a good way to do it if we do do that. So uh, if you're interested in sponsorships, uh, drop us a line. We'll figure out what we're going to do. Uh, we do want to up the show and uh, up the game here. So we're going to do a couple things. So just watch. Maybe we'll consider it. But if you're, you're serious about it, let us know. We just want to... We're, we're, we're testing the waters here because we want to do some interesting things with production as well, getting this out to folks. Uh, but other than that, stay safe, everyone. We're almost at the end of this thing. I think tail end, we're starting to see people open up. We're starting to see people uh, in the lockdown somewhere uh, as data and other things come into play. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting. So, but yeah. So thanks a lot, everyone. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Take care. Oof.